All right, we are back. We promised on last week's program that we would quote for you what Ron Paul had to say to the U.S. House of Representatives back in September of 2002. I was sent an email by Lisa in June of 2004 talking about uh, this 35 questions that Ron Paul had submitted to Congress, which he said needed to be answered before we invade Iraq. Lisa noted this was six months before the war had started. It was amazing to see how prophetic he was. To quote from Congressman Paul, Soon we hope to have hearings on the pending war with Iraq. I am concerned that there are some questions that won't be asked and maybe will not even be allowed to be asked. Here are some questions I would like answered by those who are urging us to start this war. One, is it not true that the reason we did not bomb the Soviet Union at the height of the Cold War was because we knew they could retaliate? Two, is it not also true that we are willing to bomb Iraq now because we know it cannot retaliate, which just confirms that there is no real threat? Skipping around. Number five, is it not true that the intelligence community has been unable to develop a case tying Iraq to global terrorism at all, much less the attacks in the United States last year? Does anyone remember that 15 of the 19 hijackers came from Saudi Arabia and that none came from Iraq? Six, was former CIA counterterrorism chief Vincent Canestraro wrong when he said recently there is no confirmed evidence of Iraq's links to terrorism? Number 11, why are we taking precious military and intelligence resources away from tracking down those who did attack the United States and may who again attack the United States and using them to invade countries that have not attacked the United States? Number 12, would an attack on Iraq not just confirm the Arab world's worst suspicions about the U.S.? And isn't this what bin Laden wanted? 13, how can Saddam Hussein be compared to Hitler when he has no navy or air force and now has an army one-fifth the size of 12 years ago, which even then proved totally inept at defending the country? Here's one I like. Number 18, are we willing to bear the economic burden of a $100 billion war against Iraq when oil prices expected to skyrocket and further rattle an already shaky American economy? How about an estimated 30 years occupation of Iraq that some have deemed necessary to, quote, build democracy, unquote, there? 23. How can our declared goal of bringing democracy to Iraq be believable when we prop up dictators throughout the Middle East and support military tyrants like Pervez Musharraf in Pakistan who overthrew a democratically elected president? 25. Did we not assist Saddam Hussein's rise to power by supporting and encouraging his invasion of Iran? Is it honest to criticize Saddam now for his invasion of Iran, which at the time we actively supported? 27. Why do oil company executives strongly support this war if oil is not the reason we plan to take over Iraq? 29. What is the moral argument for attacking a nation that has not initiated aggression against us and could not if it wanted? Number 30, where does the Constitution grant us permission to wage war for any reason other than self-defense? 33, is it not true that since World War II, Congress has not declared war? And, not coincidentally, we have not since then had a clear-cut victory? 34, is it not true that Pakistan, especially through its intelligence services, was an active supporter and key organizer of the Taliban? And finally, number 35, 
why don't those who want war bring a formal declaration of war resolution to the floor of Congress? Well, I think Ron Paul was asking some pretty damn good questions on September 10th of 2002. And for that, Radio Parallax salutes him. We would add that his comment about a war costing $100 billion was absurdly low. Last summer, CBSNews.com noted that the final bill for the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, according to a Brown University study, would come to between $3.7 and $4.4 trillion. Trillion with a T. That was the final bill when you start factoring in nation-building efforts, the cost of providing medical care to people that are severely injured, and uh, the interest on what the U.S. borrowed to fund these wars. I would also refer you to uh, McClatchy.com for an article from last August by Nancy Youssef on this very topic, noting that the cost of two wars is hard to pin down, at least that was the headline in the B, noted the piece, because of the government's complex budgeting process and incomplete record-keeping, no one really knows the total cost of the United States for the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. But they did give some measures of the price tag. As of April 2011, we were spending $3.5 billion a month in Iraq versus $6.2 billion a month in Afghanistan. So every month, $9.7 $9.7 billion as of last spring, meaning that, uh, well, doing the math for one year, last year, you'd be well over Ron Paul's $100 billion. And that was just for last year. Noted the article, the estimates can be eye-popping, especially considering the logistical challenges to getting even the most basic equipment and comforts to troops in extremely forbidding terrain. In Afghanistan, for example, the U.S. military spent $1.5 billion to purchase 329 million gallons of fuel for vehicles, aircraft, and generators over a six-month period. That was a not unheard of $4.55 per gallon, but it didn't include the cost of getting the fuel to combat zones and the human cost of transporting it through hostile areas, which could hike the cost to hundreds of dollars per gallon. Article noted further that since the U.S. government issued war bonds to help finance World War II, Washington has asked taxpayers to shoulder less and less of a burden in times of conflict. In the early 50s, Congress raised taxes by 4% of the gross domestic product to pay for the Korean War. In 1968, during the Vietnam War, a tax was imposed to raise revenues by about 1% of the GDP. No such mechanism was imposed for Iraq or Afghanistan, and in the early years of the wars, Congress didn't even demand a true accounting of war spending. Now, asked the article, at a time of fiscal woes, with Americans weary of the wars, the question has become how much the nation's largest bureaucracy should cut. Well, none to hear some conservatives tell it. The fact that the U.S. has uh, stated that for the first time in 15 years, the defense budget may need to be cut, is outraging some people. People like Max Boot writing in commentaries say things like, forget that the U.S. is currently engaged in three active wars or that faces threats from Iran, North Korea, and a resurgent China. To President Obama, in his wisdom, this is just the moment for a fresh round of deep cuts in the U.S. defense budget. Said Boot, there is no surer prescription for American decline 
than to skimp on our national defense in these perilous times. When it comes to defense, there's only so much fat you can cut before you start to hit muscle. By the way, is anyone out there concerned about an attack from Iran, North Korea, or a, quote, resurgent China, unquote? Because if you're losing sleep over this, you, you, you may want to consult your mental health professional. Of course, when I say that, <laughs> I would note that that opinion, like all those heard on this program, do not necessarily represent those of either KDVS or our sponsors or the regents of the University of California. But let's move on. Say what you want about advocates for the homeless in the Sacramento area, and we've said a lot in the past and have oh, so much more to say in the future. They certainly are savvy at public relations. Article in the Sacramento Bee by Cynthia Hubert noted that a small but vocal band of homeless people fighting for the right for a legal campground in Sacramento has scored an international coup. A special investigator for the United Nations following a visit last year with Sacramento's homeless campers is appealing to Mayor Kevin Johnson to provide them with proper sanitation and drinking water. Article quotes a staff attorney at the Legal Services of Northern California saying that Sacramento is now being judged by the entire community of nations as having failed its human rights obligation to its own citizens. Well, in the first place, a lot of our homeless are not exactly Sacramento citizens. A lot of them come in from communities miles away because of the relative red carpet treatment they receive here in the state capitol. The article didn't seem to quote anybody that was pointing out some of the lunacy in this idea of uh, supplying our imported homeless people with more of the conveniences of modern life, but uh, I, guess that'll, I guess that'll have to fall upon Radio Parallax to do, and, and we'll do what we can in the months to come. We do know what one longtime listener will suggest is that we move the Kings to Anaheim and give the homeless Arco Arena. But anyway, we are delighted that the UN, having resolved so many issues in the Middle East and in Central Asia, and just about everywhere you look, really, is now uh, able to devote some extra time to the homeless issue in Sacramento. Congratulations, guys. Of course, uh, we by and large support the goals of the UN, which is more than you can say for the Tea Party. According to a recent article by Leslie Kaufman and Kate Zernicki in the New York Times, across the country... Activists with ties to the Tea Party are railing against all sorts of local and state efforts to control sprawl and conserve energy. They apparently brand government action for things like expanding public transportation routes and preserving open space as part of a UN-led conspiracy to deny property rights and herd citizens toward cities. They are apparently showing up at planning meetings to denounce bike lanes on public streets and smart meters on home appliances, which is something we should talk about at greater length in the future. But uh, these efforts, they equate with a big government blueprint against individual rights. Article notes that in Maine, the Tea Party, backed by its Republican governor, canceled a project to ease congestion along the Route 1 corridor after protesters complained it was part of a U.N. plot. Similar opposition helped doom a high-speed train line in Florida. Of course, wait, wait, till, wait till the Tea Party gets a hold of that one in California. Or wait till the corporate, uh, corporate people that don't want to see the high-speed rail get behind funding the Tea Party to protest against that. I did the, I did the disclaimer, didn't I, Mr. McMillan? Yes. Yeah, okay. 
These are my opinions, folks, for better or worse. But the article notes that more than a dozen cities, towns, and counties under new pressure have cut off financing for a program that offers expertise on how to measure and cut carbon emissions. This article really caught my attention when uh, our, one of our Bay Area correspondents, Gordon, who we sent to a Tea Party uh, convocation to see what he could see a couple years back, he attended a meeting in San Jose and was astonished to see how disruptive a certain group of people were that showed up to complain about city planning efforts. Gordon was a bit mystified as to what was going on. I, I think we've now figured that one out. The article notes that these protests date back to 1992, when the United Nations passed a sweeping, but as usual, non-binding, 100-plus page resolution called Agenda 21. It was designed to encourage nations to use fewer resources and conserve open land by steering development to already dense areas. The protests have gained momentum in the last two years because of the emergence of the Tea Party movement and harnesses its suspicion about government power and a belief that man-made global warming is a hoax. Well, and something else we better keep our eyes on, don't you think? Now, we, we like to do at least one stat on every program, as, uh, as, as long-time listeners will well know, but uh, let's take a minute to talk about some other interesting stats at greater length. Starting with an article by Dan Smith, SACB.com, noting that... Uh, Spending on lobbying in Sacramento has set a new record. Apparently business, organized labor, and other interests have spent a record amount, uh, up nearly 6% more than they had spent in 2010. Leading the pack, the California Teachers Association had spent $6.5 million in lobbying efforts, followed by the Service Employees International Union at $5 million. I had a chance to have breakfast a couple weeks back with a lawyer that works with a lot of uh, lobbyists here in Sacramento, and what he told me was very disturbing. I hope to return to this in a future program, but in brief, he described sitting down with some lobbyists who asked, what are the rules on this? He mentioned that they were hiring some very, very sharp legal talent who didn't really care what the rules were, they just want to know what they were so they could subvert them. And they were confident, completely confident that knowing what the rules were, they would figure out ways around them. I'll have more to say on that after I have breakfast with him again. Here's a frankly irresistible article about uh, the Delta and the great water controversy in California, which is one of our absolutely favorite topics. We'll be talking about that quite a bit in the coming year. But according to the Stockton record, Nearly four out of five Californians do not know what the Delta is, despite the fact that uh, the largest estuary in, I believe, the Western Hemisphere of a thousand square miles provides drinking water for cities from San Jose to San Diego. Asked in a new statewide poll to share what, if anything, they knew about the Delta, 558 of 750 people surveyed in late January, 78%, said they hadn't heard about it or didn't know about it. They noted that in a separate survey in 2007, nearly half of Stockton residents had only a vague idea or none at all that they lived on or near the Delta. Now, I have to note, having worked in Stockton for many years, this last part is not terribly surprising. 
Article quoted a Rich Atwater described as director of the nonprofit Southern California Water Committee, which represents urban areas dependent in part on Delta water, saying, quote, I've been working in water politics for 35 plus years, and it's been pretty consistent that the public has generally a lack of understanding of the geography of water in California and where their water comes from, unquote. Article quotes a Whitey Rasmussen is saying that he thought the 78% figure would be higher. They do note that in Southern California, it is. 86% of Southlanders pleaded ignorance when asked about the Delta. Quoted Whitey Rasmussen is saying, they just go out and turn their tap on and it's just water to them. When they go out and wash their cars, it's just water to them. We have time in the weeks to come. We'll pull out one of those pieces written a couple years back about how we need this new peripheral canal, the Southern California to save the Delta eco- ecosystem. And we're going to bring Burt Wilson back to talk about that. Uh, meantime, we will again ask the question we continually ask on this program to those who would like to put this peripheral canal in place is to how it is you can improve the ecosystem and improve the fisheries and help the fish by taking their water away. And if you've got an answer to that, you're welcome to drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. In fact, everyone's got an open invitation to do that. I hope you will. We do like to quote from the email sent to you by dear listener. I think I'll quote from uh, Ross, who sent us a a line a couple days back saying, Hey, Doug, always enjoy your show. I'm addicted to it. Really thought-provoking moments with Bob Berman. I went out immediately and bought the book. Here in our town, they're spending buku bucks to beautify the city. But I say you can't make a silk purse from a sow's ear. And no, we're not naming Ross's city for (laughs) offending listeners in it. But uh, Ross, I know what you're talking about. And Ross, thanks for the link to your friend who's built an observatory in his backyard. Very cool stuff. Unfortunately, because of the light pollution where I live, uh, that's not possible. So I do envy anyone who can look up at night and see the Milky Way. All right, final statistical item. This one I I really do like. A couple weeks back, the Department of Agriculture unveiled what most gardeners had already known for years, which was a new plant hardiness zone map. It shows generally warmer low temperatures for winter than the department's previous map from 1990. Article in the Washington Post by Adrian Higgins notes the nation's 80 million gardeners rely on the map to pick trees, shrubs, grass, and perennials that would survive where they live. Now, in spite of the fact that the the title of the piece was Plant Comfort Zones Shift North on Map, the text notes that agricultural officials stress that the new map is not a tool to measure climate change and that many of the boundary shifts are the product of better and more complete data and sophisticated computer algorithms. (laughs) Sure, Run a better computer algorithm, and all of a sudden, you can grow bulbs 100 miles north. So yes, the color graphic accompanying the piece blithely notes that the USDA is changing its planting zone map because the country is warmer, and data and map-making technology are better. Whatever you do, though, don't try and uh, construe any meaning that, you know, the climate is changing from that. Make sense to you? Doesn't to me either. And on that note, let's take a break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We've got lots more in our third segment, so don't go away.
secret agent man. Secret agent.